Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hello, everyone. I am thrilled today to share with you my conversation with Ray Senarigi. I first met Ray several years ago, pre-pandemic, at a coffee shop near my house in Portland, Oregon. We'd met on Instagram the year earlier and finally made a date to meet in person. Ray is one of those people who you meet and who instantly puts you at ease. His kindness, generous spirit, and easy demeanor make you want to be around him all day. Ray is best known for being a non-binary trans artist who makes gorgeous, colorful, larger-than-life portraits of trans people. Ray is also an illustrator, hand-drawn type designer, muralist, storyteller, cancer survivor, and activist. He's also partnered to Gina, a therapist, and dad to two kids, and a spreader of queer joy and trans liberation and representation. Netflix and GLAAD invited Ray to celebrate authentic, accurate portrayals of trans characters in media through a series of paintings. He's also partnered with the Philadelphia Trans Wellness Conference and Washington Healthcare for All to support healthcare for the transgender community. He's done work for gender justice and other important organizations striving to make life better for both trans adults and kids. In today's episode, Ray and I talk about his journey as a trans person, as an artist, activist, and father, and showing up in the world right now for trans liberation. Let's welcome him to the show. Ray, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to talk to you and dig into your journey. You are trans and non-binary, and you are also an artist and an activist, and your work is extremely personal, and your art and your existence as a trans person and an activist are very tightly integrated, right? Like your art and your life are integrated in this very tight way. Literally all of your work is centered around transness. Paintings of trans folks work about transgender liberation, work about queer joy, queer safety, trans joy, trans safety. And this marriage of your identities has really captured the minds and hearts of many people, not just other trans folks who want to see themselves reflected and represented, but also for the wider queer community and beyond that for folks who are, for folks who love and care about queer folks or are on a journey to be more loving. And your work has so much power and you have used that power that lies in your creativity to wield so much good in the world. So I'm just so excited to talk to you today because you are really an example of like living your values. Thank you, Lisa. That's just wonderful to hear because I respect you and your work so much. And I know so much of yourself is embodied in your artwork as well. And so I just, I appreciate that. And it's also just a treat to be on your podcast with you. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Just so folks know, we met in Portland. You used to live here in Portland, Oregon, and you reached out to me. I think we followed each other online and you were like, let's have coffee. Yeah. (laughs) And then we became friends. And then shortly thereafter, you moved to Madison, Wisconsin. Right after, I know. For very good reasons. (laughs) Yeah. It was was time to leave Portland, but I am sad that 
you know, it, our physical ability to hang out together. <laughs> I know, I know. So take us back to your childhood into your young adulthood. Tell us about those first phases of your life. Wow. Well, there is a lot there. Um, <laughs> I will give you the succinct version. Okay. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a very restrictive evangelical church that actually is being researched as a cult wow. by the University of Montana. So like, you know, kind of an extraordinary cir- circumstance. It was, a, it was a place that actually encouraged people to cut themselves off from other family members who weren't a part of the church. So I think that's where that research comes from. But it was very, you know, like I grew up very sheltered. I didn't have access to media, you know, no TV, really no radio, no magazines, no really outside influence at all. And so I remember being like, I remember being a young child and being really free. And then I remember there was like a time right around like seven, eight, when we moved to a different house, my dad had gotten remarried and everything kind of got, I think that they noticed my transness, honestly, they noticed that I, like all of my friends were other boys and that's how I played and that's how I behaved. And so there was this concerted effort that like, I remember my, my room was pink. All of my clothes were like all of a sudden pink and purple and my glasses were purple and I didn't make these decisions. They were like made for me. And so I kind of went into this survival mode, I think, um, looking back on it when in childhood from seven till I was probably about 16, 17, I just kind of like went internally. And I do remember very clearly that, you know, my outlet, my ability to express myself got focused almost exclusively into art. It also, I also was able to do some, you know, sports, running cross country, doing track that really helped me as well. That was also an outlet for me, almost like a meditation. But, you know, my childhood was, was, um, it was difficult for lots of reasons. And then this sounds almost like a joke, but it's not. I, (laughs) when I was 16, I told my parents, like, I'm not going to this private Christian school that you're paying me, paying to go. Um, I, so I transferred from Valley Christian High School to the public high school that I was in the neighborhood of, which is called Hellgate High School. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I transferred, I <laughs> know, isn't that funny? Transferred from Valley Christian to go to Hellgate. And I remember I, you know, I entered, so my junior year in high school, so I did my junior and senior year there. Junior year was just kind of like getting to know a couple people kind of coming out of my shell a little bit. I remember like realizing that people that didn't believe like me, who uh, had different faiths or different spiritual experiences, like that, that was okay. Like I remember just, you know, going through like so much growth at that point. And then I, you know, finally figured out that I was queer when I was like maybe three months away from graduation. So, So somewhere in the spring of my senior year, a girl just kissed me and I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, like we were dancing and stuff, but I didn't really understand what was happening until she kissed me. I was like, oh, oh, got it. Okay. So like <laughs> lots of, lots of growth, lots of, you know, discovering myself kind of all at once in my late teenage, early twenties years. And, you know, even then a lot of my expression was either through outdoors activities like going on a hike or a bike ride or going on a run or art and like those were the those were the always the avenues for expression 
when yeah. when when this girl kissed you mm-hmm. what was there a part of you that was like oh shit or mm. were you so happy to discover this thing about yourself that made you feel good inside that or was it a combination of of those things <laughs> it was honestly like i so I, th- I thought this person was really cool. I was a senior in high school. She was in college. I think she was a freshman in college. We were like a year apart. And I w- was really excited to go to this dance with my other high school friend because it was an all ages dance. And this person that I had met once was there. And so I just like went up to her and like started talking to her. Like, you know, we talked once and, <laughs> you know, you were really nice to me. And I didn't really understand what that really nice thing meant ah. until she like dragged me out into the dance floor, you know, and I was dancing with her and my friend in like a little triangle. And I remember the smoke machine started and my friend kind of like drifted off into the smoke and the girl kind of like started dancing closer and closer and then kissed me. And people that know me now and knew her then were like, yeah, your eyes were like, you know, big as saucers. <laughs> like it was very surprising. I had no idea what was happening. But my, we like made out all night. And I like, I remember riding my bike home. It was springtime and the sun was coming up. It was like 5.30 in the morning and the sun was coming up. And it, I just had this feeling of like the wind going through my hair and this smile on my face that I couldn't wipe off if I tried. And there's just like exhilaration and excitement and like joy. Just like I was so happy, like things finally made sense. Mm. <laughs> you know? And at that, I mean, I experienced a similar euphoria the first time I ever kissed a girl. And I was a bit older. I was in my early 20s. But like, and previous to that, I sort of had figured out that I was gay. This wasn't the like thing, you know, that made me realize it was more like, finally, this is happening. And it's just as amazing as I, or even more amazing than I ever would have imagined. But I'm curious, you know, at the time you didn't have a lot of exposure to gay culture or this was, was this in the nineties? Yeah. 90, 98. Okay. And so, you know, but it wasn't, absent from our culture you just had, didn't have a lot of exposure so so this girl kisses you you ride home you're like ah, I think I f- am figuring out who I am and why I feel different what did you do then you know it's really interesting because I think because I had been so shy and introverted the first year that I was at that high school my senior year, I started to get to know more people. I cut off all of my long hair into a short haircut. And so there was, I got, you know, really the the social group and the 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 environment that I was welcomed with at school was really like, oh, this person's actually kind of cool. I want to get, you know, I got this like positive response and I didn't get that bullying thing that happens that, you know, I met a friend of mine who went to school at the same high school, you know, 10 years later and experienced extreme bullying because she was very butch and went through her whole high school there. And so, you know, I think that I got kind of a, an interesting, you know, welcoming experience that, that not everybody is lucky enough to have. And I just accepted it and was like, Oh, great. You know, this makes sense. And like, I was in such a place of still learning about everything and trying to, you know, learn 
about music and about TV and movie. Yeah. You know, there's just so much to learn, let alone queer culture. So like this was an explosion for you in every way. Correct. Yeah. And so the gay part was like in there, but it was like a part of this larger crescendo of, you know, everything being new and really exciting. I was like living in my own apartment and, you know, it was, it was, some of it was not exciting, but, um, but much of what I remember about that time was very exciting. Totally dramatic, of course, but (laughs) exciting nonetheless. Yeah. 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 So, so then you graduate from high school. What do you do next? I'm, I'm sort of interested, like, also, when did art become an interest of yours? I mean, did that happen in high school or from the time you were young? Or was that something you discovered sort of after you came out to yourself? Well, my mom was an artist, and she was a really good artist. She didn't get to go to any schooling about it. But I remember these, like, really incredible colored pencil portraits that she did. Mm. And I remember watching her. She died when I was 11. But I did get all that time, you know, before then, where I got to actually learn a lot from her. And she obviously encouraged my artwork. And so like, I, that was the one thing through my whole childhood that was my, it was like what I did when I, you know, was done with my homework or whatever, I'd just go in and draw and illustrate. So when I graduated high school, I did go right into college that following fall, and I did one year at the University of Montana for fine art, and (laughs) the spring semester, I got an F in a painting class because I didn't show up to to class enough. Um, Girls were way more important um, at that point, and I just kind of realized, like, I'm not I'm not ready to be here. Like I'm not focused. You know, if I, if I get an F in a painting class, like that's something is wrong here. Right. So I dropped out and I definitely still did a lot of art. I was, you know, trying to put on little art shows and coffee shops and things. I ended up moving to Seattle in 2000 and, you know, did a couple art shows in Seattle but really was doing kind of like administrative work, that kind of thing. And I did go back to school for commercial art when I was 25. So it took me a little while. I, I think I had so much learning and growing to do you were that. Up. You were catching up. I was yeah. catching up. Yeah. Yeah. I needed to, I needed time, you know, and I find when I finally went back when I was 25, I was really serious and really focused about art and really, you know, just sunk my teeth into it and had an experience wonderful experience going back to school. So you studied commercial art. I know for a period of time you were doing like scientific illustrations after you finished school. Is that what you what you studied or? No, not at all. <laughs> okay. So tell us how that happened. That happened because I graduated in 2009, like right at the, you know, housing crash. The economy was terrible. I spent nine months applying for jobs, you know, and I applied for so many jobs and like nothing. And I had this brand new degree and like, you know, a couple of, I had an internship with a really cool ad agency in Seattle. And I had had a couple of graphic design jobs that were like, you know, a tiny little newspaper and a sign shop and stuff. But I, I was like, really spreading a wide net by the time I applied for the job, which was 
working for the University of Washington at the genome sciences department. And I knew I had no experience. So I went after it really hard and I like designed my resume as an illustration of the brain and like all these different skills that I had. And I did a bunch of, you know, I did like two informational graphics charting my experience and what different programs I had. And I made this whole little brochure to prove to them that I could do this, even though I didn't have, you know, the skills. And I I hand delivered this printed out thing that I had made and I got an interview. And I remember being so excited. I got an interview and I know that there were hundreds of people who applied for the job. But the the guy who ended up being my boss interviewed me, and I remember being in the interview, and he he like rolled out this thing and was kind of showing me something, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool! And we just like geeked out together, and he was like, yeah, let me tell you the thing, and we did blah blah blah, and we we just like connected, and I was like, this is so cool, and I think that's how I got the job. Honestly, is that I was like you know, he was very charismatic. He's really passionate about what he does. And I was like, this is amazing. And I know nothing about science, but I'm going to, you know, like Google it and make you cool stuff. And it was a, it was a really cool job. And I, you know, I don't do that work anymore, but I feel like it was this really interesting, you know, it was almost 10 years that I did scientific illustration work where I basically had to draw all these things that I have never physically seen before. You know, I'm not, cutting open a heart on a cadaver, you know, I'm, I'm having to like research other images and then make my own. So I kind of learned how to like draw almost anything and add my own lighting to almost any shape, any organic shape. And then like the patterns that occur, you know, in the universe that also occur in like our neurons and like all of that, I feel like has informed the abstract art that I do and has informed and made me a much more confident artist when it comes to something like portraiture, you know, like it's, yeah. you wouldn't think that, but like, or I was also thinking about your botanical illustrations yes, and just how precise they are and how full of life they are. And I imagine that 10 years of scientific illustrations probably lent itself to that, even though you didn't start doing that you know, commercially until the last few years. So I love that. Yeah. And it also, I think it's, it's such a good message for people out there who want to make a living as an artist, whether it's for themselves or for clients or to go get a job like you did. Like so much of what helps us on that path is our enthusiasm, right? Like mm. you didn't hold back from being a geek with this guy. You were, you were like, I'm going to nerd out right now. And if, you know, probably in the back of your mind, you're like, what do I have to lose? Right. And you also kind of nerded out on your resume and like <laughs> yeah. all of that stuff, which I know for a fact, like I just gone through a big hiring process for an employee that I have now. And I mean, the lengths that some of my applicants went to, to, you know, embellish their resumes and stuff really made me pay attention. You know, ultimately it also came down to like, did they have the experience? But, you know, you said you, you wanted to show them what you could do, even though you didn't have the skill, but you did have the skill. You just didn't have the experience or the training, right? Yes. Yes. And I think so often, you know, we don't go for opportunities because we're, we're like, oh, we're just not qualified. And if you really want something, you got to try, you know, make it happen. What, what have you got to lose? I love that story. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you get this job, you're living in Seattle. Mm -hmm. 
working for this university, doing scientific illustration, you love it. Somewhere in there, a transition happens? Yeah. When I was, I graduated in 2009, got that job right actually around the time that I was like figuring out my gender identity. I'd say probably like a a year into that job, I started figuring out like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I had dated a trans person about a decade before that. Like I definitely knew trans people. It just had never occurred to me that I might be trans. And, Mm. and then it started to occur to me. And so I kind of went on a, 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 about a year journey of just like exploring that within myself and with my therapist and just being like, is this a thing? Is this, and especially because I do feel like I am non-binary I think that made it extra complicated and being like well I'm not like this person that I dated and I'm not like a lot of the other trans people I knew not that I knew a ton at that point yeah but I knew very binary trans people right and so I was like well does do I not is that not me then and so it was just a little confusing I needed to like explore that question well and also I think we have so many examples now because of social media and all the conversations around trans rights and trans liberation, like people, most people, not everybody, has a picture of what that looks like. I mean, I had a a student a couple of years ago who is like fully non-binary, but identify, you know, like is trans and they're, you know, in their early 20s and they have the benefit of like seeing this around them and knowing like, yeah, I might have, you know, some gender dysmorphia and like all of these things are happening, but like, I know that this is who I am. And I think that back when this was going on for you, we didn't have all of these pictures for you to say, oh, there's that person and that person and that person for sure going through this. And they're, they're like me. Right. Exactly. And I, I think that's one gift of social media is for all of the, <laughs> the horrible parts of it. I do think young folks and even older folks who are wanting to transition, like have so many more pictures of the fact that it's not a binary, right? Yeah. And it's not just one thing. It's not just one thing for, yeah, it's different for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, And so many things make that complicated. Like when you discover that about yourself, where you are in your life, whether you have secure housing and healthcare and you know, a a job and all of those things matter. The color of your skin matters as to like what that experience is like, you know, me being a trans masculine person who's white, who had a a stable job and stable housing when I discovered all of this made my experience a lot easier than it is for a lot of folks. And so, um, yeah, it was a, it was a journey and it still is a journey for me. Like I feel like there has never been a point A to point B for me because once I did finally start, you know, some medical treatment for understanding my transness, I was only on that for a couple of years when then I got diagnosed with cancer, which you, you know, and I had to go off of the medication I was taking so that I could be on this cancer medication, which I thought was supposed to be for five years. And then when I hit the five-year mark, after surviving cancer, think thankfully, then they were like, well, actually, we want you to be on it for 10 years. <laughs> and so I actually am coming up on my now second one-year anniversary of being back on on the medication that I stopped for, I guess, six years or so. Mm. 
And I had to go to lots of different doctors to oncologists and get all these different people to look at my case and be like, what do we do? Because there aren't that many trans people out there who've also survived cancer and like, (laughs) just complicated. But yeah, my journey has been, you know, it's been long and it continues to be long and kind of evolve. And that's why I, I really do. I mean, part of what got me on the portrait project was this realization that like my trans experience, even if it's like super similar to another trans person is also like completely different because I I met a guy who was going through almost the exact same kind of cancer. And we were both going through that at the same time when we met, we had the same doctor and she was like, I don't know if you, if this is appropriate, but if you guys want to meet each other, let me know. And we were both like, yes. And we met up and we like look like each other a little bit. <laughs> like he's like blonde and I've got dark brown hair, but like, he's also an artist. And, you know, we, we just had a lot in common and we're also going through the same kind of cancer. And, and what struck me was that we made completely different decisions about our about our transition and what was important to us what medical procedures we needed to have and so I thought like man if we are this this similar like I met my like blonde doppelganger and we've gone through like all these all of these similar things and we've made these very different choices and that just made me realize like how different all of our experiences are and kind of got me on this journey about you know, trying to represent to the best I can with my work, you know, the diversity that exists in the trans and non-binary community. Like there's just so much and our experiences are so rich and amazing, you know? So anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about that project. So when you started the portrait project and I'll link to your website where people can see the portraits that you've done of trans folks. Were you still working at at the job in Seattle? Yes. Mm-hmm. So talk about like what, you know, you know, say more about what sparked that idea for that project for you and, you know, sort of how that took off. Yeah, the I got inspired because I actually got hired to do a mural at the Portland Community College. They had a brand new campus in Rock Creek that opened and the Q Center there had this giant wall in their office that they really didn't know what to do with. And all of the art that they kept trying to put up there just seemed dwarfed by this giant wall. And so I put in a proposal and did this mural and I had told them I could, you know, I'll paint up to six LGBTQ people throughout history. You guys get to choose who that is on the wall. And we basically did this like geometric you know, rainbow, where it wasn't just like a a rainbow on a wall. It was like geometric shapes in lots of rainbow colors. There was a lot of like black shapes at the bottom that were done in chalkboard paint. So people could like interact with it and write messages and things. And then I had proposed to do the portraits in just black on this really colorful wall. Right. But when I did that, I remember doing the very first portrait I did of, of Harvey Milk, who, as you know, is, is, passed on. And so I, I painted him in black over this wall and I stood back and I like panicked because mm. it looked like, I don't know if you've ever gone into the, into like a restaurant where they have like old newsprint on the wall and it's like dated and it's supposed to look old and like historical or something. 
and that's how it felt. It didn't feel like alive and vibrant. And, and I just kind of got like sad and also panicked. And I remember like going for a walk and being like, you know, just breathe. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the mural was due, you know, like I needed to get it done. And it just didn't, it didn't look like I, like I wanted it to. And I went for a walk, kind of meditated and did a bunch of online surfing for artists that I love and like just looking at other art for inspiration. And I was like, it dawned on me that I was painting LGBTQ people. You know, our representation is this rainbow. So I'm going to use rainbow colors to depict the skin and hair, but leave the clothes black. And as soon as I made that decision, you know, the art just like flew out of me. Like it was, I was like so inspired and I had so much fun doing it. And I posted a couple of videos to my social media feed and people just reacted to it in a way that they'd never had with anything that I had ever posted before. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on to something here. I love it. And other people love it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I got done with that project and was like, I want to do more. I want to do more portraits. And then I just narrowed my focus from like the whole wide umbrella of LGBTQIA plus to, you know what? I just, I re I love going to art museums. I love going to galleries. And, you know, I, when I go to travel to a new city, I'm almost always trying to find if there's an art museum and go visit. And I've never just walked into an art one of the portrait galleries, the painted portrait gallery. I've never walked into one of those and seen a trans person. And at least I didn't know that. I've seen, at that point, I had seen maybe one special exhibit, you know, where it was like a, a few different artists or whatever that was like a special thing about, okay, this is a trans exhibit, something. But I just realized that there's this real lack of representation, right? And that gave me some focus that gave me some direction of like, I am trans. I have all this understanding of like how complex and how interesting we are. And also I don't see us in this particular space that I'm interested in creating art for. And that's really what spurred the the work that I do now. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, the, the, these series of paintings has led to a lot of really cool, exciting things for you. So talk about a few of your favorite things that have happened over the last few years since you started this portrait series. Yeah, I think the most surprising thing that happened was Netflix, you know, reaching out to me and having me be a part of a really cool project that they did around trans representation. A producer reached out to me on Instagram and I honestly thought it was spam and like almost didn't get back to them about it because I was like, <laughs> what, really? But yeah, I got, you know, hired by the Portland Trailblazers to paint some jerseys and you know, like it, I've, it, it's, it has expanded into ways that I never would have imagined. But you know this as a as an artist who's like, I think once you have a thing and you are doing your thing, I think people get attracted to that. And they're like, hey, I want you to do your thing with this project that I have. And that's what I, I guess I didn't understand about, you know, I think when I was solely doing commercial art, I thought that I had to mold myself to the job. And now that I am on this side of my career, where I'm, I, I am, I do have a day job. I do, you know, have a job that, that pays the bills that I like doing, but I also do a lot of, you know, other work that, that includes the fine art work that I do. That's that I'm, you know, not getting commissioned for or whatever, but I also get commissions for fine art and I get 
commercial art commissions that are about my fine art, you know, like, and, and it's all this blend, but that, that a lot of, almost everything that comes my way now is a, is coming my way from the things that I've been putting out that I put out there because I just wanted to put it out there. You know, the, the typography work that I do with flowers is all stuff that I just want to create and have to create. And the portrait work that I do is something that like is a passion project. And it's been so cool to see the way that like the world is responding to that in a positive way. And I, I think I, I remember hearing people say that, but I didn't quite understand it until it like happened. And it still surprises me sometimes, you know, but yeah, I think that once you're doing and putting out work that you are truly into and interested in, that ignites that interest and that excitement in other people. And it's like, you know, there's like a magnet pull. Yeah, I agree. I And I also think it's the absolute best way to build a career, even though it can take a really long time for that magnet to become strong enough. Yes. But I mean, it's certainly how I built my career. Like I in the very beginning of my illustration career, you know, I had an agent and I love her, bless her heart, but she was like, read trend reports and like draw more garden tools and llamas, you know? And I was like, um, I'm not interested in drawing those things. And then I finally gave myself permission to just do me. And it took a minute, but like, I started just putting out stuff. I was like, I'm not going to follow trends. I'm going to set them. So yes. So I just started making the work that I wanted to make and using inspiration that felt powerful to me, not what I was told that I should look at. And it was transformative for me. It's like that it was at that point that my career really started to take off. And now I'm in the same position as you where, I mean, this is years later, but like people want Lisa, right? Like they don't want me to draw something that doesn't look like Lisa and they're hiring me for things that I'm passionate about. Like I get asked a lot to do stuff for the LGBTQ community. I get asked to do a lot of stuff around cycling and for cycling companies because I'm a big avid cyclist. And it's like, I'm this whole person who shares her whole self online and the work as a result ends up being super aligned with my values and my interests. And I'm at the point now where I, I still get asked to do things that I'm not interested in or that don't feel aligned. It's not like those opportunities don't come, but I'm starting to say no to them because I'm like, actually, I just want to do the work that that I'm really excited about, whether it's stuff I initiate myself because, you know, I want to do a personal project or I have a show somewhere or whether it's a client job where somebody comes to me or a company comes to me or an organization comes to me and says, you know, we have this initiative and we'd love your, your take on it. And, you know, and that's, I don't know, I, I feel it's a journey to get there, but it really is like, I feel like I've never been in a place in my career where I feel like such alignment between the essence of who I am and the work I do. And it sounds like you're kind of in a similar place. Absolutely. And I was, nobody could see me, but I was gesturing wildly with excitement when you said that, (laughs) because it's the coolest feeling in the world to be like, you know, people are coming to you to offer you work and, you know, ask you to to do something with them. But they're that alignment piece being there where they're like asking you to make something that is completely in alignment with what you already really want to make. And that part is so cool and so exciting. And 
honestly, it's very new for me in my career, but it is happening with more consistency now. And like, like you just said, I, I do sometimes get offered for, you know, projects that I'm like, ah, you know, okay, I, I could, but I am also starting to say, mm, you know, it does that even fit in with my schedule? You know, like, is it something I really want to do? I, I have very limited time and, you know, being able to say no, because I know that I have other work that I'm passionate about is really, a. a an incredible place to be in. And I don't know if I even believed that it could happen before it did. I know. But it's... Well, there's something about entering into that from a place of humility, because I think it, like, I don't know about you. I'm a, I can only imagine that you also probably wake up like I do and like, I am so grateful. Like, yes. because I didn't expect this to happen, because I never necessarily thought it was possible. I was just making the work I wanted to make and expressing the ideas I wanted to express yeah. And I and actually have this platform, you know, that I can do it from and it's really resonating for other people. It, does everybody love it? No. And like, is that my job to make everyone happy or have everyone agree with me? Absolutely not. But um, I think that's part of what gives my work a point of view is that I'm not, I'm talking about, my work is about the stuff that I care about or the stuff that I think is interesting or beautiful. Yeah. And there's always an audience for that. There are always going to be people who, you know, for whom your work resonates. I'm curious, you're now like full-time artist, you know, I mean, not that you weren't before when you had a, had a job, but you've transitioned. When we met, you were like, I mean, you've gone through two transitions in a way, right? Yeah. (laughs) And you were starting to transition into being a full-time artist and not a lot of the stuff that's happened for you had happened yet. And so it's been really beautiful to watch this all happen in real time some of the work of yours that I love so much that you've started doing is like typography and botanical illustrations with messages about trans liberation and trans safety and, you know, protecting trans kids and all the things that we care about so much. Talk about how that body of work, which is really very different than your paintings. And and I also love that. I'm somebody who has like my hands in lots of different mediums and my style comes through, but I like having these kind of separate compartmentalized areas that I work. So talk about how that area of work came about for you. You know, my portrait work is very fulfilling and it's something that I feel like is one of those lifelong pursuits. Like I will never be able to paint enough people to, you know, make a dent in the vacuum that is the lack of trans representation out there. So like, Whatever I can do in my lifetime is what I can do. And it's a passion project. It's something that I will continue to do. I'm endlessly interested in it. But it also is a long process. And I, you know, I have dedicated time every week where I go into my studio and I paint. But those portraits, you know, often take anywhere. They used to take me anywhere from a month to three months. Now it's like a month to six months. (laughs) And they're huge. Some of them are are, are really big. They're mostly, usually at least five feet tall, up to five feet wide. And some of them have, you know, been six feet by eight feet. And I I haven't been able to paint that large as much because now my studio is actually a lot smaller than it used to be in Portland. But they're still pretty big and they, they just take me a long time. And I found myself in this situation where, like, I needed to express myself and it needed to be in a, 
in a more quick fashion because it was really it's like reactionary and what so I'm going to back up because one of the one of the promises that I made to myself when I survived cancer was that I would make art for myself that had nothing to do with whether I was getting paid that had nothing to do with anyone else it was like I'm going to make art for me and that is a commitment I'm going to make to myself but I also made a commitment to whatever art I was going to make it was going to be coming from a place of of love and that was going to be you know that was just like a, a like a base that I set for myself and so you know when I see these attacks on trans people and this kind of stuff it, it riles me up and it makes me angry and in order for me to create art about that my method has been to you know sometimes words are you do this you you have art that's just art and then you all have art that's that's like very rep- representative of like shapes and colors and and you know things that you might be painting and then sometimes your art also in, integrates words or is just and, words or is just words yeah and so like there is something about like being able to express myself through words that's so different than than portraiture and allows me to to kind of have this reaction to things that I see in the world that are really the opposite of what I want to be seen. And so like that, that outlet came from me wanting to respond to those things. And then for me, directing that in a positive, you know, like, what do I want to see in the world? Here's all this, here's all this stuff that's making me mad. You know, what is it that I want? And I, you asked me about projects that have happened that have been impactful. Last year, you know, there was this onslaught of anti-trans legislation happening throughout the United States. I was feeling really frustrated. I was like yelling into the void online and, and I was like, I got to do something tangible. And so I reached out, um, found a couple groups here locally in, in Wisconsin that were doing work on the ground to try and fight this stuff. And they had already purchased a billboard space and showed me the design that they had, which was very nice but very generic. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, can I, can I redesign your billboard? And we'll, we'll that'll be part of what the, we're doing to help you raise money and awareness. And the message that we came up with is just, you know, the rain, they wanted a rainbow flag. So it was like the, the progress rainbow flag with the message you are loved. And then I added those flowers in this kind of, I really like including this feeling of movement and motion with the flowers. I try and include that. And that, billboard project was one of the coolest things that's still going around where people started reaching out and were like, we want one of those billboards. And so those billboards have populated in many different states. And there's another one going up in Helena, Montana, which is not too far from where I grew up. That'll be up for the next year. Uh, I think it went up this week or next week. So those have been really interesting because it's been people on the ground in places where they are raising the money uh the you know the one that i was just talking about in helena that was fundraised by these people who own a bookstore who put it out to the community and were like help us get this billboard up and the community raised enough money that they can have a billboard for a year <laughs> you know people really responded to that which is not cheap by the way billboards are expensive they're not billboards are not cheap yeah so it's just been this wonderful interesting grassroots experience that had nothing to do with me making money and everything to do with me saying, you know, instead of 
focusing on all of this horrendous stuff that's happening. I'm going to focus on, you know what, let's get this message out there of just, you know, <laughs> for those trans kids or those queer kids, you know, hang in there. You are loved. People are fighting for you. You know, it's been very powerful and humbling, honestly. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And then that has, I think, also led to a lot of fundraising. You and I both have done work with gender mm-hmm. justice and, yes, you know, and, and now I get requests from all kinds of organizations to donate work or to make work for them to sell, to raise money. And so in some ways that work, you know, while it also led to feeding your family in the long run, it is also leading to, to actual on the ground change, you know, that people are making. Right. And that must feel yeah incredibly gratifying. And yet- here we are. And here we are. And this year is worse. Yeah. Right. This year, this bullshit worse. is happening in Texas. I was just listening to a radio interview with a mother of a trans teenager on NPR the other day who was literally sobbing. And I just cried my way to the studio that day because uh, she's a Mexican immigrant, you know, was like, we came to this country because we thought we were going to have more civil rights. And now, you know, I run the risk of you know, being accused of child abuse. And I mean, just terrified. I mean, yeah, if anyone doesn't know what's happening in Texas, oh, yeah. explain the governor and the attorney general there have said, we're going to pursue child abuse charges against any parent who supports their transgender child and are encouraging educators to report if they know of anybody who's trans so that they can investigate them and their parents and their medical providers for child abuse, which obviously is just not only ridiculous, but antithetical to every single medical association who is worth their salt in this in this uh, country and around the world. Anyone who's actually studied this medically, scientifically has said like, yes, trans people are real. No, it's not a mental disorder. And the best thing you can do is affirm people who are trans, right? Which means to say, oh, you're telling me you're trans? Okay. I believe you like that. That's as simple as, as I can break it down. And so just, I wanted to quickly pause and give people a brief rundown of what's happening. Cause it's, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's not just about, you know, barring trans kids from sports, which is a big part of what was happening last year. We knew the people in the trans community, the people in the queer community probably knew this where like, you know, they start with one thing, but it's going to escalate. And this is where it's escalated too, which is we're going to bar, you know, people from accessing the healthcare that they need to get. And now we're going to go a step further and criminalize your parents for it and try and take you away from your parents, which is just, you know, outrageous and scary. And, you know, honestly, you know, I've been feeling even worse than I did last year in this, like, there's a, there's like a paralyzation feeling that happens when it's just like, oh, this thing is so big and it's so awful. And, you know, what helped me through that last year was, taking some sort of action. And that's what I'm, you know, trying to figure out and sort out this year of like, what is it that I can do? Because just sitting at home, scrolling through the social media is, you know, there, there's this sense of like, doom and, and, you know, hopelessness and all of that, that comes along with it. And so, you know, the best thing that I have, have been able to do myself is like, figure out how I can help. And I'm not a lawyer. And I'm not, you know, there's a lot of things that, that I can't do to help. And, you know, doing art might seem like a not necessarily powerful thing to do, but it, it it's the, the thing I can do. It's the thing that I can offer. And so, yeah. you know, I'll, 
I'll figure out what my response is this year. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate all of that background information. I, I think sometimes in my own world, in my own head, everybody knows what's going on in Texas. But I I, I, I think at some point I would have caught myself and said, wait a second, here's the background. But um, you said it way more eloquently than I could have. And <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, it feels personal to me too, which, and obviously to you it must. And so, and I feel similarly, like I, I actually have come to believe that art has so much power to change minds. And I'm going to link to your billboard, which is just one of many pieces you've made in support of, you know, trans rights and trans liberation, not just for young children, but for, you know, all folks. And also I feel like is so educational for, that might not even be your, you know, your goal, but is so educational for, for folks who want part of them can see something from a different perspective and might actually transform how they think or what they believe. I do feel like art has the power that sometimes a conversation, you know, doesn't have the power to do. I mean, ultimately the power lies in relationships and people actually knowing trans people and knowing that they are just human beings. (laughs) Yes. And so I just want to say I appreciate all that you do and you're such a role model for me in in your activism and how you use your work. Yeah. You are in a relationship. Yeah. Are you are you you're married? We're married, yes. To Gina. And mm-hmm. how long have you two been together? We met the summer after I graduated from commercial art in 2009. Okay. Yeah. So was she were you in a relationship with her when you transitioned? And got cancer. Yes. Okay. Yes. We have been through the ringer together. Yeah, you have <laughs> yeah. been through a lot together. And you moved yeah. back to Wisconsin because mm-hmm. Gina's family is there and you have a very close relationship with them. And now you have two kids. So I want to talk for a second about, first of all, what it's like being a dad. When we first met, well, Gina was maybe not even pregnant yet, but then I think the year, the first year we became friends, she got pregnant and that was really exciting for, for both of you. And now you have two kids. What's it like a being a dad? And, and I really want to talk more about like, what's it like being a trans dad and like, how does that feel for you? And what, what has your experience been? Boy, that is, there's a lot there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Firstly, you know, being a parent is just a, an extraordinary experience. It's full of like so much joy and, you know, just like amazement, but it's also filled with like constant challenge (laughs) and any parent of small children, you know, kind of understands that challenge. Like it's like the days are long, but the years are short thing where like every day it is like a marathon, like Gina and I literally look at each other over the dinner table usually and are like okay see you at the end which means like see you after the kids are down into bed and we might have a half an hour before we fall asleep to connect with each other (laughs) um so there's this like marathon of exertion all the time and there's like what you know when we had one child that was one thing and now we have two children and our ability to have any kind of downtime like just kind of 
evaporated. <laughs> so like when, when you only have one child, you know, like you can, one person could have the one kid and the other person has a little bit of time. And we still do that with the kids. Like I'll take both kids out on a hike, but it's just like, I feel like our, our energy level is just like battered in a different way now. And especially I think compounding that is the pandemic. I mean, our, our youngest is only two and a half. So almost her entire life has been in the pandemic. And that is, you know, it, it has just been a challenging couple of years. But, you know, there will be these moments where I'll be sitting, you know, next to my kid's bed and we have like just read our books and we're doing our story time or our our, our songs or whatever. We have like a, our little mm. nighttime routines that we do. And I'll catch myself every now and again being like irritable because, you know, he's not going to sleep or he's like asking me for one more thing. And then I'll just like take a moment and be like, he is only going to be this age for like this day. Right. And just like looking at him and being like, or looking at my youngest and being like, you are so incredible. And like, I get to be your parent and, and kind of like just taking a moment and be that gratitude piece of being grateful for where I am and grateful to be their parent really helps me shift out of whatever irritation I might be feeling or frustration or tiredness or all these things that are, you know, on the challenging part of parenting, that gratitude piece of like, you know, watching them run and giggle across the yard. And those, those moments are just magical. And there's just nothing else like it in the world that I've experienced, you know, having them run, you know, to me at school and be like, Papa, and like, hurl their arms around me. Like there is no better feeling in the world than that. I'm jealous. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's just like, you know, your heart kind of bursts and, you know, I feel like, so Murphy was two and a half when we moved to Madison and now Lulu is two and a half and Murphy is five. And the two and a half years of her life went by so fast. Uh, Whereas I feel like the two and a half years of Murphy's life, maybe it's because it was our first kid and we were like figuring it all out. But man, the time has like flown by so much faster. And so now I feel like I'm reminded in a, in a more urgent way of like how fast the growth happens. And it just happens over all of these cumulative days, you know, like where you think you're just going about your day and doing this normal thing, but there's this extraordinary arc that's happening right in front of you. (laughs) It's It's crazy. I mean, I mean, just as somebody who's like watches from the outside, I remember the first time you and I had, I mean, I knew we knew each other before, but like first time we met in person, I think, you know, Murphy was like not yet two. And yeah. to think that he's already five is sort of like mind blowing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, and that you have this other kid who I've never met. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's nuts. It is. Yeah. So talk, talk about, you know, being a trans dad and like, do you have community around that? And like, what's is that even a thing that you think about or that that is conscious in your mind? Like when you meet other parents, like what, what's that experience like for you? You know, uh, it's been hard, honestly, that piece has been hard for me. 
I think because I feel I'm at this place where I'm feeling a little frustrated with the fact that I had to go off of hormone therapy right as it had just started making a difference. (laughs) And then I had to go off of it. And so almost all of the changes that I had experienced kind of went away over the six years of being off of it. And now I'm back on it again for a year, but it takes a number of years to really make a, an impact. And so I get misgendered all the time and being around other parents, you know, you're, you're just like thrown into these situations with other parents where, you know, now obviously most of us have masks on and so it's hard to recognize each other and people will be like, Oh, are you Gina? And I'm like, Ugh, you know, no, I'm not <laughs> Gina. And, you know, I just, I get misgendered a lot and it is, it's difficult because it makes it that much harder to connect. I think that parents already have a hard time connecting with each other because, you know, your kids know each other and they have a relationship, but you are, you know, just kind of speed dating other parents and being like, oh, do we have anything in common? Maybe not. Uh, Let's chit chat. (laughs) And, you know, it's, so it's, it, I think it's already awkward for most parents being in that situation. And then it's kind of compounded and I've noticed myself honestly kind of reverting to that old, you know, protective thing that I learned in childhood, which is to kind of, you know, just retreat a little bit and not share or be as open about who I am or what I do. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, I don't open up as easily with people who are other parents who are mostly all, you know, cisgendered heterosexual folks. And, you know, that makes me a little sad We do live in a place where there are lots of queer folks here, and we had started to make some friends when we first moved here. There was a queer parents group for parents of kids like age four and under. And we, so we did meet a couple of folks there, and we do still have a, like just a a handful of people that we were able to meet before the pandemic hit. But now we've been in a pandemic for a couple of years. And so, like that, I do feel like our ability to like meet and connect with other parents who, I might connect with better has been hampered, you know, and I'm hoping that that changes over the next few years. And I'm also hoping that my own, you know, gender expression is better able to be seen by other people and by myself now that I am, you know, able to pursue medical treatment again for that. And so I'm hopeful that like my own, my own comfort level of just being out in the world, I hope will, you know, continue to, to evolve because there's this thing, like, again, the, the surviving a deadly disease thing um, and surviving a pandemic and just like realizing like how short life is like, I, when I look at myself in the mirror, I do practice like self-love and I, I'm okay with my body the way that it is, but I'm not okay with people projecting some version of who they think I am at me. And that's the, where the rub is right now for me is that people don't, people who don't know who I am, don't see me for who I am. And and that creates a barrier. And especially with parents, because it's like, you know, you got kids running around, you're, you're distracted, maybe trying to get to know somebody And then there's this added hurdle for me. So it's just made me a little bit more reserved, I think, which. Yeah. And I think that's, it's so important for people to hear these stories because, 
you know, we, we walk through the world with, you know, you and I both with so much privilege, right? You know, and yet you underneath this facade of this handsome, smiling guy, you know, are struggling because you're not exactly where you want to be. And you've had all these disruptions in your transition. I mean, not in your transition, but in the like gender expression part of your transition because of cancer, which we didn't even broach the subject of what that was like (laughs) for you. We can do another episode on that. But that like you never know what struggle other people are going through, especially people who are dealing with you know, who are, are are marginalized or who are living in the margins. And I don't mean socioeconomic margins, but like, yeah. there, you know, it's not like you're going to walk into the, you know, any elementary school in, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, and you're probably going to find a lot of liberal people, but you're not necessarily going to find any other trans dads, you know. And that's, I think, like this, you know, where the likelihood of the average Joe finding a, a friend whose kids are a friend with your kid is you know, is going to be much greater than, than it is for you. And that that's like a, a thing that I don't think yeah. we think about. And one of the things I appreciate about you is that you do live with so much gratitude and so much joy and so much intention, but you're also really honest about the stuff that's hard. You're not trying to pretend it doesn't exist. But I imagine all of the intention that you live with around, like, how can I be the best dad? How can I live with the most joy? How can I contribute the most to my my people, my community? Must also kind of help you get through those moments, you know, of despair. And you're also in a relationship with a supportive partner, which I'm sure helps. Yeah. I'm curious, what advice do you have? And this is my last question. What advice do you have for anyone listening who is struggling now to find joy or purpose? Because I do think for those of us who, you know, who are queer or who are trans or who in some other way are not part of like mainstream society, like we have to in some ways commit to joy with a vigor that is greater than maybe the average person because so much is hard and it's not even visibly hard to other people. It's just microaggressions and other things that we experience or ways in which we're scared to be ourselves in the world that other people may not see. Cause they're like, Oh, you're Lisa Congdon. You're cool. And like literally have no idea that like, I'm terrified of certain things. Milkshake is chiming in here. <laughs> so I have to like make this real effort to like live with intention and joy. And, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. So what advice do you have for people who know that, you know, intellectually that that's probably going to help them in their path? How, how do we get there when life is hard? That is such a good question. And, you know, I resonated with everything you just said. You do, you never know what somebody's going through and it might look like everything is going perfectly for them. And they might have all kinds of things that are, are weighing on them that they're struggling with that you might just never know about. And so I completely agree with you about this intentional and purposeful, like determination almost to be and embrace joy, to be joyful, to embrace joy in your life, to embrace. And what I found the quickest way to embrace joy is to embrace gratitude, right? It's sometimes hard 
to just be like, just turn on a switch and be joyful. But anyone at any point can take a moment, take a breath, and find something to be grateful for, whether that's something that you take for granted every day. Like, you know, I can close my eyes and just be like, I am grateful for the fact that I'm alive. I survived cancer. I am grateful for, you know, the fact that I can feel my heart beating and it's keeping me alive. I'm grateful for my hands that help me paint every day. You know, I'm great. You, there's always something to be grateful for. And what I've found is that that practice of going back to gratitude is what generates the joy that I'm able to feel. And I'm not joyful every day. I'm not grateful every day. Honestly, I forget a lot of times, but when I find myself in a situation where I'm feeling irritable or grumpy or stuck or depressed, often what I'll do, if it's not zero degrees with 20 mile an hour winds, (laughs) I will go outside. (laughs) It's been cold in Wisconsin, but I usually will go outside for like a walk around the block or, you know, a walk down to the water if I can get there. Even if it's not like some big, you know, outing to go somewhere beautiful, even if it's just, you know, opening your window to get some fresh air and taking a breath, think of 10 things that you're grateful for. And it won't, it's not going to solve whatever problems you're having, but it does do this thing internally, which is like, for me, it helps me like, relax my shoulders. It helps me kind of like shake off the stuff that is weighing me down. And energetically, it changes how I approach the rest of the day. And so that's my, my simplest suggestion to folks is that if you can find a moment, find some way, if it's finding something that brings you joy that you know, brings you joy, that's another thing I do. And I'm sure you do, Lisa, is I'll, you know, you'll go for a bike ride. I, every weekend last summer, I went for a bike ride with the kids that generated joy for me going down and painting in my studio, even if it's just for, you know, half an hour will change my energetic experience of the whole rest of the day. So it doesn't have to be some big thing that you, you know, have to carve out tons of time for. If you don't have tons of time, literally, you know, think of 10 things you're grateful for that takes like one, two minutes, you know, if you have a little bit more time, try and do, you know, make time to do those things that, you know, bring you joy, because that's the stuff that feeds you, that generates you, that allows you to tackle the harder stuff, you know, the stuff that is maybe drudgery, you know, (laughs) if you've got some moments where you're doing that thing that you love, that, that generates and hopefully snowballs into you doing more of that thing that you love. I think so many of us were raised, you were, you know, raised in this very, you know, conservative Christian church, you know, until you were a teen and made a conscious decision to leave. And I was raised with Christian religion. And I feel like so much of the message is that, you know, you can be joyful for Christ, but like, God forbid you be joyful for anything else and that it's indulgent. And, and I really had to like relearn my relationship with joy and, as I became older and not feel guilty about it and to actually like embrace it because I know that it makes me a better person in the world for other people and for myself. And I I actually want to say that the story you told about your son, you know, like Mm -hmm. how just that moment of gratitude at night when 
you know, he's asking you another question that you're like, will you shut up so that I can go spend time with Gina? You know, you're like, but wait a second, like pretty soon he's not going to be asking these questions anymore. And he's going to be, you know, a teenager who doesn't want anything to do with me. And like, I know this moment is so important. It changes everything for you. And I think that's such a great example of what you're talking about. Thank you so much for your time today. I just, um, I'm so glad to know you and so glad to like have followed along on your journey and so and like many people out there so inspired by you and everything you do and in the ways that you show up in the world so thank you so much ray i am going to link to all things you in the show notes so people can find you on instagram and your website and yeah, i'm going to link to some articles about your your billboard so people can see how stunning it is and uh yeah so thank you thanks for having me on it's just been lovely to talk to you and you know discuss all of the joy and all of the art and your podcast is an inspiration to me because you're having these real conversations with people about how they got where they are and what they do to what feeds them and I just am appreciative of you so thank you thank you that means so much to me I hope you've enjoyed this episode editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.